what makes change permanent is if we incorporate it into our, our identity, the bedrock of how and who we are, our operating model. If we make a behavior change and don't incorporate that into our identity, then go away. It's gone. If we incorporate that as part of our working model of how and who we are, then we will come to see that as part of our identity of who we are. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-word Podcast. Thank you for joining today. I am extremely excited for you to hear this podcast with Dr. David Kruger. Before we get into this podcast, if you can do me a favor, I'm asking it like I do all the time, but if you can, head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. That would be greatly appreciated. And if you want to send your favorite episode or any episode to a friend, family, or someone you feel like would enjoy this, that would be great as it helps support me and the show so that we can continue to bring great guests like Dr. David Kruger. Who is Dr. David Kruger? Well, he's an executive mentor coach. He's a CEO of MentorPath, and he is an executive coach training and also has a publishing firm. David integrates mind, brain, and performance science in strategic coaching and helps many people sustain peak performance. Also, David likes to write. He's the author of 24 trade and professional books on success, wellness, money, and self-development, and has 75 scientific papers. His book, The Secret Language of Money and Your New Money Story, have been big influences on how I think about my money story, and I highly suggest you look, take a look at these books, The Secret Language of Money and Your New Money Story. I'll have links in the show notes. David was also named as the top executive mentor coach in 2021 for his work. Dr. Kruger also practiced and taught psychiatry and psychoanalysis and was a clinical professor of psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine. He's done so many fascinating things with his time on this earth, and I'm glad that he shared some of that time with us. During this episode, we really dive into psychology and neuroscience on how to deal with our money stories. David talks about how to think about the cost of money. We often think about the cost of things, items, materials, but reframing this to how to think and deal with the cost of money was really insightful for me. David dives into the neuroscience that explains how 95% of our money stories are unconscious and how we can actually start to gain control and make these things more conscious so that we can have a thriving and healthy relationship with money. David also talks about tactical ways using his proven roadmap system of how we can revise and rewrite our new money stories. And a big part of 
David's work in psychiatry in his past life and current is sustainable change. And I think for most of us, I speak from experience, sustainable change is something that we're looking for. And David speaks about having systems in place in regards to our money stories so that we can have a sustainable change. And we even talk about the language of money and discuss how and why ACDC's song Money Talks was their highest charting single in the USA. Perhaps it was our unconscious money story that loved that song. Maybe, who knows. And finally, something that we didn't get to that I really want to share with you guys is while I was preparing for this conversation, I came across a written piece that David wrote about being a parent. Me, being a parent of two, this really resonated with me, and I thought I would share it. A child gives birth to parents. As parents, we are really their students. They still know what we've forgotten. Parenting can be the last enclave of true creativity, that variant of fame called being needed. And children teach us about ourselves, not of all which we necessarily want to learn. On some days, in fact, not very much. Finally, by the time you've gotten the rhythm of the thing, it's over. That quote really, really resonates with me. So thank you, David. I hope everybody enjoys this fascinating conversation with Dr. David Kruger. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Super to be here. As we are, as I talked about in the email exchange, it was so interesting to find your book as I've been trying to attempt to dive into my money story. We talk about it, money stories often on the podcast. And when I came across your book, it just, I felt like it was written for me. So thank you for that. And, and the part that really resonates with me in your work is this idea of story. And I think as humans, as we know, one undeniable fact about us is we love to tell and take in stories. And perhaps it's an evolutionary survival skill that allowed us to get to the top of the food chains, us humans being able to tell stories. So perhaps that's a reason why it feels so good to tell a good story. I'm not sure. But when I observed your story from what the internet tells me, <laughs> I see that you're a father, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, executive coach, author, scholar, and so many more things. When you, David, reflect back on your story, what significance did Stubby the pig and your father have in writing the plot or influencing the plot within your story? You remind me, I'm going to have to update on the put aside. Stubby was my first business venture in the fourth grade. My dad gave me feed for all of the pigs, which was kind of a sideline to farming and ranching. If I fed them, he would give me one pig. And when it came time to sell, I hadn't really anticipated my emotional attachment to Stubby. So I cried. My dad had to console me. And after that, I moved into businesses that had far less emotional attachment. It's hard to get emotionally attached to a stalk of cotton. So I moved ahead with that, but kept that as a lesson. And in terms of cotton, one lesson I learned in this tells you something about age and inflation. I chopped cotton for my dad in hot summer days for 10 cents a row. And those were long, sweaty rows. I could make maybe 60, 80 cents in a morning. When I started back with school right after lunch, I joined my buddies. We had a Coke and candy. And the first time I spent my hard-earned money, 
I asked myself, is it worth one row of chopping cotton to buy this Coke? Is it worth a half a row to buy this candy? My answer immediately was no. And as I reflect back, I learned the cost of money. And that's something we usually don't wrap into lessons with our kids. We talk about value and maybe give close allowances and collaborate about choices and that sort of thing. But the cost of money is always something to consider and something to look at as we factor that into our relationship with money. Wow, thank you for that. So many different things I want to comment on. It was interesting how you said that you were too emotionally attached to it. And then you went on to other areas or other like cotton that doesn't have that emotional attachment. And then it's interesting you ended up working as a psychiatrist where I would assume there's a lot of an emotional attachment within your, your work in that realm. And then the cost of money, I think that framing is something that is quite important. And we're, we're really going to dive into how we can perhaps put that pause in so that we can reflect, think about that cost of money. Because I feel like, at least I speak personally, this instinct to just react, react, react with money and hopefully, and I speak from experience, use money to soothe lack feelings of lack of or feelings of not feeling heard as a way to remedy that. Remedy that. I think this idea of stopping can help us identify that cost of money and also so many other things that are part of our money story. And so my next question is around our money stories. For me, for years as a financial planner, I focused, in fact, obsessed over the, the external side of money. So compound interest, intra- returns, how markets work, and all of it. I mean, it's important. It, it's required to know the technical side. But when I started to gain awareness of looking below the waterline to see what was inside of myself, I started to see a vastness, but I was met with a lot of resistance and hesitation. But I felt like the more I persist to look under the water, I I started to learn a lot more about myself. In your latest book, Your New Money Story, I personally found it captivating. It's a great read. It's well-researched and it flows nicely. At what point did you decide to start applying the fields of psychology and neuroscience to how we deal with money, our relationship with money? I began early on to listen to some of especially my psychoanalytic patients, who came in and talked about how unhappy they were, how they had never found contentment or happiness, and then had things added on that tried to make them happy, that created their own symptoms. And what I saw was that their relationship with money was a primary aspect. For example, someone had determined that when I make $5 million, I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be content, everything's going to be great. When they got to that, it didn't answer the questions, of course, so they upped the ante. And whatever it was, it was always more and the hope of more that provided a stimulus and a sense of hope to keep going. The first book I did on money, I did a survey in a number of speaking engagements with professionals and executives, and I passed around an index card with three questions, or asked the questions and three numbers on the cards and treated it confidentially and anonymously, and asked, 
Put now a one word or one figure answer to each of these two questions. What does money mean to you? Two, what is your current annual income? Three, what would you need to make in order to be worry-free and be very happy about the money you make? And the first question, a whole range of things from worth, autonomy, love, security, opportunity, whatever their current level of income was, almost 97% of the respondents out of several hundred had a figure that was double what they needed, what, what they had currently that they needed to make. If they were making at that time 50, they thought they needed to make 100. If they were making 250, they thought they needed to make 500. And in follow-ups with the groups, there was a trailing double. In other words, somebody who made 200,000 thought they, and this is, this is in the, the late 80s, keep in mind, when they made 400,000, they thought it would take roughly double, at least 750000 to be happy. So they kept more alive, which emphasizes that more is not a figure. It's not a destination, just like later is not a time. So it emphasizes how the specificity of goals can be helpful to know when you've arrived to see if that's really, to see if you're using the right map for where you want to go. What's going on there? Like you, you talk about goals. Can we be satisfied with money, our relationship with money? Do you feel? Yes. Here's what I do with each client in mentor coaching and some variation for each session as well as the overall engagement. We look at developing a roadmap. With a map, you know where you are, where you're going, and you can measure progress along the way and importantly, you can also tell what's deviation and distraction. So the map, the destination, as well as the current experience, frames that single coaching conversation. What would you like to focus on today together? And where would you like us to get to as well as the overall engagement? So with a map, the beauty of a map is all the stuff you don't pay attention to. But when you have a destination, you know when you arrive. So the antithesis of the constant doubling or the more or the not enough is to have a specific figure so that you can see what that addresses and what it doesn't. And to have aligned your own needs and ideals with strategies and goals to see that all of you is going in the same direction. And then you can see what money does and what money doesn't do. And that often has to be a revision of the unconscious operating system that we've had that began before earliest words and memories. Because neuroscientists show us now that over 90% of our operating system is unconscious. Therefore, the surface story of what we want consciously and logically is only a small part because that unconscious operating system is what contains all of the assumptions, the beliefs, the blind spots, all of the things that go into creation of, say, a money story with all the meanings, the specific meanings that we have about what we can and can't do with it, what it says about you, what we feel we deserve, what we feel we're worth, what we feel we're capable of. So in that way, for that more than 90%, money becomes a portable to the immaterial and the intangible. 
it's a symbol. It becomes a symbol and it represents different things to each person incorporated into their unique money story. My mind is just loving this right now. Um, that, that point of money is a portal to the immaterials and the intangible. I feel like it just speaks volumes, at least to me, in this idea that we're all on our own journeys where sometimes we have this like templated roadmap that says you should do this, this, this. And if you're not doing this, you're bad, essentially. And I really like this idea that you, you frame money as a portal to our immaterials and intangibles. How does one get to the place to actually get through that portal to start being curious to poke around at that 95%, as you quoted, of the unconscious operating system so that we can bring some awareness? Because again, I speak from experience, getting through that portal, there's a lot of resistance there. Okay, the beginning is very, very simple, and it doesn't take looking at history or anything in that unconscious operating system because everything that's meaningful, every algorithm that determines behavior, attachment, feeling, meaning will manifest in the present. The things that you just did air bullets for, that's a story that's created in this moment. The experience is to look at and have a systematic way of examining that story to see what you want to change, what you want to keep, what you want to let go, and what you want to avoid. So each of those are important decisions, but basically, here, here's the premise. If you want to really change or create a new story or change an old story, don't focus on the goal because most people want the same thing. And most people have goals that are abstract and vague, like, well, I want to generate more income and create wealth. Everybody has the same goal. Focus on the system. And the system that I've developed that you've seen to look at and examine in a really objective and subjective way is the roadmap system, the seven steps to looking at understanding and deconstructing the story to see if and where you want to change that. We can get into that if you'd like at a, at a later point. But it's, it's doable because if you want to change, create a system. And this is one system of looking at a money story. The other example of a system I've already given is beginning conversation. Where would you, what would you like us to focus on? Where would you like us to get to? Because in that sense, my client and I, or whoever's conversing with me, if we begin in that way, it's different than a usual conversation where you take turns free associating and talking paragraphs. It's what would you like to focus on? And then where would you like to get to? That's a map. Someone is signing on for ownership of that story. You co-create collaboratively a map so that you can measure progress. You can know what's deter and distraction. And then you can get to where someone wants and needs to be at the end of that conversation, whether it's 15 minutes or maybe a regular coaching session of 50 minutes or something altogether different, hanging over the backyard fence with a, with a neighbor, if you craft it in that way. So a lot of this, you know, we use the word change quite a bit there. And and so what I'm hearing you say is like this co-creating this map of identifying where you want to go. And then, of course, and I really like this idea of creating a system. I mean, it's often said that outcomes are perfectly in alignment with the system that they came from. So I, I like this idea of creating a system. When you're working with clients, 
and, and they want to change, is it necessary to go? So I'm hearing a lot of forward talking. You said create a map and go to the destination. Is it beneficial? Is it necessary? Is it required to go back a little bit to understand why we think, feel, and behave around money? There are previous experiences that you kind of alluded to earlier from childhood. Or is it not always necessary to go and unpack all that and just try to move forward? From a former cord-carrying psychoanalyst and a psychoanalyst who taught other psychiatrists and psychoanalysts, no, it's not necessary. Because anything that is important that determines thoughts, feelings, behaviors will manifest in the present. And when it manifests, if it works, do more of it. If it doesn't work, do something else. So... All the things that are barriers or blocks or things that simply don't work will manifest in order to look at how to do that differently. That's where the framework comes into play. And this is such an important concept because, for example, our brains can't tell the difference between anxiety and excitement. So how we frame it consciously determines how we're going to proceed. If we frame it as anxiety, That means avoid better head for cover. If we frame it as excitement, as challenge, as opportunity, we move forward and engage it in a way to create new neural networks and pathways in our brain. If we pursue it as a problem, that goes down an already existing pathway so that when we do that, even ostensibly to create new solutions or a better way to do it, it etches the problem for in our brains so that we come to know a great deal about something, but we don't have a new story to inhabit. So we have to focus now and next on the new story in order to create that. So the framework is important. The framework also is a mindset that can deter. For example, one of the recent books I read by a noted social psychologist, the title, Don't Think of an Elephant. So what do you think of? You can't get that out of your mind. So the frame determines how we process things. It boots up a particular mindset. In fact, Dr. David Copperwriter, who works in the area of appreciative inquiry, has done some studies in organizations to look at the difference. When you come in as a consultant to ask about problems, you get brainstorming around problems and solutions. Instead, with a matched group of organizations, you come in and you ask about challenges, possibilities, opportunities, you get a very different collaborative process and much better results in terms of creative and innovative ways to proceed for those organizations simply by the way it's framed. Because a belief, a mindset, is the software that determines our behavior. So it's important to address that and and be aware of it currently. In a very simple example, if you believe that well, I'm, I'm just not made to, I'm just not intended to have significant money. That's a game determiner right there. If you, you will not exceed your belief, you have to change your belief and then your behavior will follow. But you have to have a plan. Believing is not enough. Having a goal is not enough. You need a plan, a specific systematic plan, whether individual or team or organization. It makes me think of... Uh... Barbara Fredrickson's work on the broaden and build theory of like, the more I focus on, I guess, the way forward, the more momentum I can build. And I guess that does change behaviors. And I would think it would indirectly or directly, I'm not sure you, this is your area, change our beliefs over time as we start to feel momentum 
going towards that map. Here's an example that is interesting to me because I, I see it as a common assumption. The preface here is beliefs, facts, opinions, things that we know are anatomical realities in our brain. So if someone tries to change your mind by introducing new facts or information or their opinions, what happens in the receiver, whether you read it, hear it, is you compare what you already know or believe with what you hear. If it fits, then there's a seeking a way to affirm that confirmation bias. If it doesn't fit, then you find ways to refute it. So the result is you're more entrenched in the position that you had before you heard that you believe or information. In fact, it's called the boomerang effect because the brighter and more intellectually flexible people are, the more entrenched they will be with their beliefs. So that's why, in my view, the mind, brain, and performance sciences are so crucial in understanding how to address and help someone change their minds or create a new story or revise the ones that they have. Where my brain is going right now is that, I'll just use myself for example, is that I was telling myself this like two years, year, I had, like everybody, this 95% operating system I had a story about money that I was really unconscious around and had me being busy and going after money. And as I started to slow down and examine or attempt to examine this operating system, I found a lot of value in going back to my old story and, and just pausing and like just stopping because I felt like I was always going, going, going. And through a long time, I realized that I was using money as a sign of, or to make me feel significant, seen, heard. And as a child, I've talked about this on the podcast before, is I, I was shy. And when I started getting into university, I started attributing money to giving me a voice to almost power. And I saw that money as a way to get my voice and it was like a very much of a maladaptive form I felt at the, at the time. So I felt I've learned a significant amount about myself by going into the past and unpacking these ideas that I co-created about money. And I always was led to believe that that was, you know, really beneficial because it makes me now feel like I can create a new money story. But is that just a story I'm telling myself about a story and not reality? Well, obviously the story worked because it got you to where you are right now talking and educating about stories and especially money stories. So if you look at what's worked about that, it's worked very well. You've been able flexibly and adaptively to self-reflect and look at what may not be working about that or what can be updated or revised to make it even more effective. But a couple of, as a sidebar here, a couple of studies by Harvard Business Review, Scientific American Mind, found that the most common success factor of all the executives they studied was their ability to self-reflect and self-regulate their state of mind. Now, I believe that was because only executives were studied. I believe that's true for everyone. And that's what I teach the coaches who train with me and help the clients, professionals, executives who work with me to be able to do more, to have more access and more capacity to their full measure of possibility. Really fascinating. We're talking about this, these stories, and as your book is titled, 
your new money story, and we've used the word change quite a bit. I speak from experience. Change, in my mind, I'm like, is everything just a story? Is this just a story that change is hard? But what I was going to say is change seems to be hard for, for myself and others. When I think about changing, I often think of Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art, where he talks about the resistance. Why do we resist change? And why do we even resist change, changing a story that doesn't seem to work? Well, the mind and the brain both want to log in on this. Every time we take a step in a new direction, something that's different, even slightly, it will register as discomfort because once we've done something enough, our brain hardwires that into the default mode. We drive the same way to work every day. After a month or so, we can listen to an audio book because we don't have to think about it. But suddenly there's construction. We have to snake our way through a neighborhood. It's work. And the brain would rather avoid that, but you can't listen to the audiobook. It takes more energy. So the brain, from an evolutionary standpoint, does things to conserve energy and to create a default mode is one of those. So that with any change we introduce, however slight, there's a bit of resistance from our mind because we have down the old way. We know how it's going to turn out. And repetition can masquerade as effectiveness. So we keep doing the same thing, even though it may not work or may not get what we want. We may do it harder. Like somebody doesn't understand English, we say it a little bit louder. You know, we keep doing it. Now, the brain perspective, here's a story of of a well-known psychologist who, as a kid, grew up where it snowed. And he would walk to school each day, being the first so that he could determine the path. Every person who followed him took the same path until the end of the day it became well-worn. He would do this each day, increasingly more circuitous, more twists and turns. Not a single person for one month of doing this created a new, more direct, easier path. This is the way things work in our brain from early on. We have a way of doing, thinking, feeling that becomes a default mode and we continue in that same path and don't create a new one because even a more direct path in the beginning would take more work and be a little bit more resistance internally and external. Also factored in, the brain has an error detection mechanism and it's very close to the emotional center of the brain that says, this isn't what I expected because We're hardwired to repeat and to do the default mode. If it's not what we expect, it registers as discomfort, as if there's something wrong. Now, if this is read as my intuition tells me this is not right, or my gut says I'm making a mistake, that's a misread because of the error detection mechanism. And this is where an alignment needs to come in to look at this is not wrong or your intuition is not all but it's a register of the immediate discomfort of doing something new and different that you've never done before. Every client of mine, no matter how accomplished or what their area of work, whether it's a pro athlete, an executive, a performer in in the arts, when they do something, when they take one step into doing something new and different, it's an immediate discomfort. So, What's helpful is to reframe that as a challenge, as an opportunity, not as anxiety, better head for cover, but 
every step can be reframed so that they can ultimately, as we do it enough together, look at that as a signpost of being in new territory, as validation of moving ahead past what they already know, so that they come to self-direct that and self-validate to be able to pursue and continue that. So they don't need me the rest of their lives because they've taken on that function and what makes change permanent. That, that's, that's such an important question. What makes change permanent is if we incorporate it into our, our identity, the bedrock of how and who we are, our operating model. If we make a behavior change and don't incorporate that into our identity, then go away. It's gone. If we incorporate that as part of our working model of how and who we are, then we will come to see that as part of our identity of who we are. I work out at two o'clock every afternoon. If I don't do that, I feel like something's missing. I haven't lived up to my ideal of myself. I'm not motivated to work out at two o'clock. I work with, with pro athletes and actors. They're not motivated to go to the gym every day, but they do it because they have a plan and they stick to it. They don't need motivation, a plan and to stick to it. And here's an example of how when it doesn't fit in. In the U.S., of all lottery winners of $3 million or more, over 80% declare bankruptcy in the first five years. Their money changed, but their mindsets, their identity did not change. So they managed to find a way to revert back to where they were before, to their true identity. That's the most powerful force of our human psyche is our identity. We will always revert back to our identity. So it's important to incorporate the changes and transformations we make into our operating system. And the bedrock of that is our identity. Yes, that also speaks to why, at least I know in Canada and the United States of America, that money is a top stressor in our lives and we're becoming more increasingly in debt is despite all the good gestures of financial literacy, perhaps it's not getting to that identity level to have that sustained change. It also is even simpler and more immediate than that because how we frame money, and if we have a framing bias about money, then it's going to affect how we proceed because the framework boots up a particular mindset that deals with the remainder of the conversation or the exploration. For example, found money. You can frivolously spend it because you didn't have any justify doing anything. Gifted money, a little bit more consideration, but you can freely spend it and it's okay because you didn't have to work for it. Salary or professional fee, serious consideration because you may consider the cotton row analogy, you may consider the cost of money. Savings, retirement, serious consideration and only emergency a tap into that money. Now, it's the same dollar in all four of those accounts. And the dollar doesn't have any idea who owns it. So it's how we regard it that makes the difference of how, how we proceed with it. You're making me think about the notion of what well, you talk about money talks. And as I was reading some of your work around the language money uses, and, and you actually use the word money talk, I couldn't help but go back 
to uh, Angus and Malcolm Young from ACDC writing Money Talks. They're lines of, hey, little girl, hey, you want it all. The furs, the diamonds, the painting on the wall. Come on, come on, money. Or love me for the money. Come on, come on, listen to the money talk. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example. <laughs> and, and it's interesting. I was looking that up, uh, getting ready for today. Is It's one of their most successful songs. It's the band's highest charting single to date in the United States. Perhaps it's the music, or perhaps it's this underlying message around money talks, but what language does money talk to us? Well, the language is language we use to express using a vehicle for money. We can idealize it or fear it or feel that we don't have enough, that we don't deserve it. We can measure success with it. We can communicate with it, use it as a tool. We can make a self-statement with it. Freedom, love, passion, worth, opportunity. It can mean basically anything we want it to mean, but those meanings have usually been programmed and are part of that operating system. So it's important to really understand how we regard money and how we write our money story, which 90 to 95% of the time is automatically written. Now, there are some things that we'll become perhaps more aware of how a state of mind can boot up a mindset that handles money differently. And we see that in the markets where there are emotional responses day by day, hour by hour. You know, an example, you know, sometime ago, just a simple example, digital equipment announced a sudden 13% decline in their earnings. At that time, that day, Hewlett-Packard lost 50% of their revenue, of their, of their worth. Now, nothing happened to Hewlett-Packard, but it was simply a transference because the regard of one computer box company carried over to another, and it was an emotional carryover, and it happened within the first very short period of time that day. So it emphasizes how state of mind can determine some decisions. And an example of how we actually can orchestrate a state of mind. Credit card companies know this. When we purchase something with a credit card, we will spend 23% more than when we pay with cash or check. Because with cash or check, it's real money. There's the sense of loss that we have. And we have an aversion to loss that registers as twice as much impact in our brains as gain. So we say, well, you know, at least I'm not spending it now. Next month is, a, is, is another month, my dear. So the credit card companies know that it's not that they're plotting, but it makes it easier because it's not processed as a loss. It's processed as an idea whose time will come. So 23% can be a lot. It doesn't even feel like your money when you swipe that. Exactly. Yeah. With the increasing abstraction of money, there's a brief history of money. You know, two goats were exchanged for five bags of rice, then coins were made, then paper bills, then checks, then plastic, then an electronic configuration of digits. And in a, in a study fairly recently, only four of 10 people with credit card accounts knew how much debt they had. 
And this wasn't like within dollars. They had no idea the amount of debt, four in 10. And the debt was significant for some moving into five figures. So you can treat it, treat it and maintain it as an abstraction until you can't anymore. Yeah. Seems like there's some, uh, I don't know, moral responsibility from some of the debt holders to make it more apparent. But I guess that's another conversation. You can also attribute a conspiracy to credit card companies who come at us because we're not paying. And it's as if they're out to get us when, in fact, we violated the caveat that I'll charge and then I'll pay what I'm expected to pay because that's our deal. We break the deal when we don't do that. And then we attribute all kinds of malevolent things to somebody who wants us to keep our obligation. Yeah. So we've talked about this system and sustaining change has a higher probability when we have a system. So in your book, you talk about the roadmap system. Would you mind explaining the roadmap system and how it can help us write this new money story, revise it, and also to your point that you've emphasized, sustain that change? I would say first, strap your seatbelts because I'm going to condense into one minute a a five series, 48 exercise workbook. So the roadmap is simply a macro system of understanding the algorithms that we use to construct, in this instance, a money story. It can be used for other stories, relationship, wellness, any any number of other stories. But for him, to look at first recognizing authorship, that you're writing your money story from assumptions about every choice that you make about earning, spending, and saving. To say that a different way, whatever you think and feel and experience, you're creating each moment. Now, you may have some hardwired expectations, and you may have a story that's hardwired because the brain is a pattern-seeking organ, and we make sense of things, understand things by way of a story. So we have a story as part of that system. So first of all, we recognize it's not there until we write it. Every day is a blank page. We may automatically do something, but we're still writing it in an active way, even though we're using the whole algorithm system that's already there. First is to recognize it in order to own it. The second step, and and this is R-O-A-D-M-A-P, I'm just going down through Yeah, yeah. So owning it, accountability is a prerequisite to change. Those are two steps because if you don't, if you don't see it, you can't change it. If you don't recognize it or own it, it's not possible to change it. Then it's a matter of assessing the plot and the storylines to recognize the behaviors, the meanings, the message, and the elusive language that mind and emotion take in terms of how we handle and regard money. So there are some exercises that crystallize that, but for right now, just as an overview, is to assess what we're doing. And you already indicated some things you've done with your money story. Then the next step is to decide what to change, to make informed choices about what to keep, to let go, to enhance, and to change. Then to map those changes, create a system, goals, success strategies, but a specific system, a map of where you are now, where you want to go, and how to measure progress along the way. Then author new experiences to create a different way of 
doing things, the new money story, step by step, and that's all you can do, that you desire. And then the final step goes back to what we were discussing about programming new identity to incorporate these changes and this transformation as part of an internal growth, as part of the bedrock of now who we are. And once we repeat it and incorporate it as our own, it becomes the default mode and part of our identity, which keeps all of us going in the same direction. You know, I really, really appreciate this very, very well-created roadmap, as the acronym goes. And that last part, that new identity that you talk about is programmed, it just, for someone who's been in the field for a while, who who sees people rely on change through willpower, which doesn't always have sustainable change, and I see their behaviors going back to old behaviors, and then they get filled with shame and guilt, I just really want to say I appreciate this, the system that is designed to really create that new automatic default system that allows people to enjoy. Because I feel like having that positive sense of a well-being is is what this is all about. Not necessarily accumulating as much money, but enjoying that new money story. So it's a way of saying that and, and applying it. It's not wealth, position, possessions, or even the chase of money that creates problems. It's when you lose yourself in the chase. Here's a preview of a possible future podcast. Well, what I'm working on now, the the last chapter in a new book and a new program uh, that I have through the Neuromentor Institute of Peak Performance to look at the mind, brain, and performance sciences applied to optimize performance for everything from sports to executives is how to deal with extreme wealth. Because people who are fortunate enough to generate extreme wealth, usually have not planned for it. They have a challenge of how to regulate with the state of mind, the fame, the money, all the things that can take someone out of their operating zone. But when they don't have a game plan, except for climbing the mountain, what you do to stay at the top of the mountain and to continue to achieve and to continue to sustain and even enhance extreme wealth can be a significant challenge. So that's a unique aspect and opportunity for what we're talking about now, because that involves some very special and important considerations about how to construct a new story, especially for an area that you've never experienced, didn't have a game plan for, and don't know exactly what to do because things are so different. And you're pummeled by people who want more of you for your fame, your money, all the things that are not part of the game plan of getting there. So a preview, a preview of coming attractions. Yeah, well, maybe there's a round two for us as well. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Well, I, I can't believe our time is coming to an end here. We have four more minutes, so I'm going to let you use that time as you see, but I have two two things here. One is a question, and the second one is to let people know where they can find more about you, your work, and resources. But my last question is, let's imagine that you're at end of life, however old that is. You're sitting on a front porch, wherever you want in the world that brings you peace and a sense of contentment. And you decide to open up your notebook and write a letter to your children's children about what you learned about having a healthy, happy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? I do that. 
actually every weekend at my ranch on a porch overlooking a lake. I do that a few weeks in a 300-year-old Creole home in New Orleans with a courtyard and have a retreat where I do only writing, research, and creation. So I do that more often than not. So the, f- the first thing I would think about entering is something that actually I got from my son. He's always telling me about stuff that he's passing on to his kids that he got from me, my daughter the same, but it's something I got from him. We always create time for what's really important. And I can't think of anything that that doesn't apply because that transcends things and systems, but it really gets to the heart of what our true north is, what our ideals and needs are. And that's something that with many clients who really need to get grounded in that, I have uh, some exercises to help them get grounded with their needs and ideals so that whatever strategy and story they develop, so that all of them is going in the same direction. Because I've seen people with needs and ideals that don't fit with their strategies and goals and successes, and, and there's a disconnect. So I think that that's really, really important. But that's a great question, and a great question for everyone who's listening as well. Oh, you're filling me with good feelings. So thank you for your time today. We have a minute left. Where can people find more about you, David? Uh, yeah, there's a, my, my website is mentorpath.com, M-E-N-T-O-R-P-A-T-H.com. And, and on the front page, you'll see my newest program about performance. It's designed for executives as well as performing professionals, pro athletes, actors, as well as practicing professionals. And there's also a, a link at the bottom for a free webinar that's only 30 or 35 minutes. For me, that's very short about master states of mind. And it dovetails with some of the things that we're talking about. It's a free webinar at the bottom. And and on that homepage is a, a, a little thing about if you want to schedule a 15-minute time to have a brief discussion with me, schedule. So I welcome any responses or anybody who wants to chat. Hit, hit the button. Thanks for the privilege from you and for all those who've listened. It, it's been a real honor. And I know I've followed some really heady people with significant contributions. I hope I've lived into a small part of that to be part of that group with you. So thank you. And, and I appreciate it. Well, you definitely have. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your knowledge. It means a lot. Thank you. Thanks so much.